0: Welcome to the Adventures in Growth podcast, where we share the stories of exceptional founders and leaders in startups and tech. We dive into the secrets to their success, operating a game-changing tech companies, and we share their playbooks of how they've built their careers, led outstanding teams, and designed the life they want. Subscribe to this podcast newsletter at adventuresingrowth.com to receive exclusive weekly insights to supercharge your professional
1: and personal growth. This week, we're speaking with Brian Law, the Chief Marketing Officer at ZoomInfo. In keeping with the spirit of adventures and growth, Brian has arrived via the road less traveled, including a stint in HR consulting and extensive international experience. After obtaining his MBA from the Kellogg School of Management, Brian assumed leadership positions at Salesforce, Google, and Tableau, setting him up for success leading marketing in a multi-billion dollar company. In this episode, we discuss the value of pattern recognition, the importance of brand psychology, and approach to developing the right mindset as a first-time CXO. We'll take a deep dive into Brian's thoughtful insights on empowering and building teams, leveraging professional networks, and what it takes to build trust and credibility in the first 90 days. Welcome to Adventures in Growth.
0: Brian Law, welcome to Adventures in Growth. Thank you for joining us.
2: Yeah, Dan, Andy, thanks uh, thanks for having me.
0: We're looking forward to the discussion today, and we've got a lot to cover. But before we do that, why don't you tell us a little bit about ZoomInfo and what the company does and your role there?
2: Sure. Yeah, so uh, ZoomInfo, for those who don't know, we're a company that really develops a go-to-market platform to help companies find, acquire, and grow their customers. So that's really about having the the world's best data and intent to help you unlock insights secondarily to help you engage customers across all your sales and marketing channels. And then the third piece is really to scale and automate all of your good market versions. So that's what we do as a company. We've got $1.2 billion in revenue, and I am the CMO of ZoomInfo. So I lead our marketing team. That's awesome. CMO now at
0: ZoomInfo, but that's actually quite a long way, or it seems on the surface to be quite a long way from where you started your career, where you were in a much more people oriented role. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did in the early stages of your career and how you made that move from Something very different on the surface to
2: where you are today. Yeah, so I've always been really fascinated by people, sort of how we think, why we do the things that we do. And so I was a psych and a philosophy major in undergrad. And then my first job out of school was in HR consulting. So it was about, I sort of, in fact, my first 12 years were consulting, but the beginning were much more around leadership development, performance management, organization effectiveness, employee engagement, which I found fascinating. One of the things that was always a challenge for me is we would many times come in after some of the, you know, the Kinsey's or the Baines or the VCG's would come in and they would put a strategy in place and then they would come to us and say, okay, how do we make it work with people that you have in the organization? And I felt like sometimes those strategies weren't informed by the realities of the people that you have in the company that you're working for. And I said, well, I want to go do that. So that was actually why I went to Kellogg. Really learned about sort of a, you know, a breadth of topics, but in particular how to really be more thoughtful on the strategy side. And then I went into consulting with a company that was called Monitor. It's now part of Deloitte, called Monitor Deloitte. Then really doubled down on growth strategy and helping companies get bigger across, you know, it could be geos or customer segments or product categories, really figuring out what were those opportunities to, to grow. I got to live in some really cool countries as a result of that. And then when I, after I married my wife, decided to move into internal strategy, I think she, she nicely told me that was something that I needed to do so I wasn't traveling all over the, the place. And yeah, went from internal strategy at Google to a company called Rackspace, and that was when I switched into marketing. My boss who realized that I had a you know a, sort of a, a real interest in people. I enjoyed sort of company strategy, but also had a, a good handle of you know data and technology, sort of understanding how the business can work and how you can optimize it. And so that was how I got into marketing. And then I grew up through gen, through sort of marketing ops, analytics, technology. Tableau and at Salesforce, and then had the opportunity here at ZoomInfo as part of my first CMO role to to take on a broader remit.
0: Yeah, it's a great summary of your journey. And I think there's a lot to to dig into, but you mentioned you traveled a lot and you talked a little bit before about pulling levers, perhaps that other people, can you expand on that notion of pulling levers that other people don't pull?
2: Yeah, through work, I got to live in Brazil, in Mozambique, in South Africa, which is originally where I'm from, in India, in Dubai, in the UAE, and then Australia. So one, I mean, I just like, I practically love traveling and living in different cultures. You know, as I was moving up in the different consulting firms, there were these opportunities. So before business school, I went to Dubai. We were going to start an office there. When I was at Monitor, there was an opportunity to take on a project in Brazil and then to take on a project in Mozambique. And I think a lot of people enjoy making those moves. A lot of people also are pretty reticent to, to do that. It's a big sort of life change. You're taking on a lot of risk. And I saw them both exciting in the opportunities that they were, but also really great opportunities to sort of leapfrog in my career, because not that many people were willing to take on those risks. So, like when I went to Dubai, I mean, I was really helping build a sort of an office from scratch. And then when I went to uh, to Mozambique, I you know had an opportunity to you know sit side by side with ministers of a country, CEOs of large multinationals that were trying to invest in the country that I just would have never done if I hadn't taken those risks. And so I've been pretty intentional always as I think about my career of where are areas that I am I can take on something that may be a risk, but like a risk I'm comfortable taking that others might not, that will allow me to just move faster, get experiences more quickly than others would. And yeah, I definitely think it's paid off.
1: It sounds like a big piece of that was a little bit around, you know, kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, big fish, small pond. But like, what else do you think about like international experience that people who haven't necessarily had exposure to that, what do you think they they fail to understand or appreciate that you've gotten to experience?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, it, for a lot of people, we end up working in, you know, multinational uh, companies. And as someone who spent most of my life in the US, I was originally born in South Africa, but there there are many US-based companies that I think could be accused of taking a very US only or US first view of the world. And the reality is that is not always the best way to try and sell and grow into other countries. And so I think the fact that I've had that exposure living and working in so many countries, including ones where they were US based. And so I got that perspective. I think it just makes you a much better business person and in sort of my case, a much better marketer, because I'm having to, you know, understand those realities effectively. Andy, your question of, you know, big fish, small pond. Yeah, definitely I think that's true. So I mean if you maybe ask on its face why did I leave, you know, the central strategy team at Google to go work at Rackspace in San Antonio, Texas. You know, that, that might not have been an obvious move, except that, you know, the opportunity was I got to be chief of staff to the CEO of a two billion dollar company, settle a leadership team, participate in board meetings with a promise of then moving out to a leadership role within the company. So yeah, that definitely has been, you know, part of the calculus. You can always choose the wrong pond to, you know, try jump into, but hopefully if you're thoughtful about it, it can pay off.
0: How important was your network and your ability to network, to find those opportunities as you progressed through consulting and then into, as you say, marketing and made that switch?
2: Yeah, I mean, incredibly so. I mean, I've definitely benefited from the, the kindness of others on a number of occasions. So, I mean, practically when I got my first consulting role right after undergrad, that was a function of the network that I had at Georgetown. And so, sort of initially got introduced to the people who then sort of were involved in the interview process. When I was at Monitor, which I got through sort of being at Kellogg, I don't know that I would have ever practically got onto the central strategy team at Google if it worked for my Kellogg network and someone who was already there because there's so many people who apply for that role. And so that was very helpful. The role that I got at Rackspace was a function of the fact I was student body president at Kellogg and I got to know the student body presidents at other schools and it was the student body president at Columbia who opened the door for me to then have that opportunity at Rackspace. So networks have been wildly important for me. And it's one of the things actually I probably undervalued when I was thinking about which business school to to go to. And I think I just sort of lucked into, you know, obviously Kellogg is an amazing school, but I think one of the things that's so amazing about it is the strength of the network and the passion that people have for the, for the school. And so, you know, when I was, you know, trying to figure out what I was going to do, I just found a very receptive, you know, set of ears and friends who were looking to help me out, even if I didn't know them. Yeah.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because I didn't realize the importance of network until I came to the States to go to business school. And I think it's one of those things that I had to learn when I got to Kellogg, and especially because of the market when we were at Kellogg. But would you say that you're a natural networker or is it something that you've worked at? And if so, what have you worked at? What are the things that you found have helped you as you've utilized that network through your career?
2: Generally, I would consider myself a natural networker. I definitely like People. I mean, at the end of the day, like I enjoy people because I find them interesting and I like to get to know them. And I think part of an area where I get value is, you know, when you know someone and you know that, you know, they have an interest area or something that that they like to do, and you think, ah, like I just saw something, this would be relevant for, you know, Dan or for Andy or for whoever else. You know, I'd love to follow up and try and, you know, make that connection. I think sort of at the end of the day, that may turn into nothing in return, which is totally fine. That's not the purpose of doing it. But I think if your natural way of operating is trying to develop those relationships and looking for ways that you can be like valuable to other people, then over time, that can also come back and benefit you as well.
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think that's something that we've heard consistently, which is, I think, being more interested in the person and it's not a transactional thing, right? And I think then it naturally leads to other opportunities. I think you mentioned something in the past about your experience with in Mozambique along those lines, if I remember correctly. You talked about some of the networking there that I think
2: catapulted you in certain other areas yeah and so you may be sort of referencing a couple of potential things so one i guess is part of my attempt to always understand others so in mozambique generally the way that works particularly when you're working with the government and you go into meetings because we were being funded by a usaid is you sort of get the mozambicans who will sit on sort of one side of the table and the minister will sit at the head of the table and the person who is the most powerful as the closest relationship will be closest to him and then on the other side of the table, you have the aid workers or aid workers there. And it was really important for me that the so the ministries that we were working with didn't see me as part of USAID or sort of just a, an, an organization that's coming in and saying, do these things, but that I was really there to help them. And so, I mean, it really stood out for me, it was maybe two thirds of the way through the, product, the project, the minister of agriculture was there and he said, Brian, I'd love for you to come sit next to me on my side of the table, which I think just, yeah, speaks to the importance of developing relationships, thinking about things from the eyes of the people that you're trying to help. And so, yeah, I don't know if that was the example that you were thinking of, Dan, but yeah, that, yeah, if I look back on the different things in my career, I, you know, get a little bit of, smile, of a smile when I think about it. That's definitely one, because it obviously meant that, you know, my attempts to uh, to be seen as part of their team were sort of, were well-received.
0: Yeah, that's a great example. And to that end, you know, as you've thought about your career And what it takes to be a leader how have you tapped into some of these experiences to build your teams
2: and to build high performing teams as you've become cmo now yeah i mean so it's actually the founder of rackspace had this phrase that i just love it's that you know people want to be valued members of a winning team on an inspiring mission you know i always try and think about that and i mean it ties into you know just like my general approach of you know trying see the person that's on the other side of the conversation and who they are and what they care about and what motivates them. And I really do try and take that to heart. So like at the end of the day, as a leader, I sort of view my my, my responsibilities set in three ways. One, you have sort of outcomes and objectives you're trying to achieve. Secondly, you have stakeholders that you're trying to manage. And third, you have a team that you're wanting to empower and make sure that they're successful. And on that third piece, the way I believe that you get the most high-performing teams is you really understand what they care about, like what their interests are, where they want to go as part of their career, you make sure that they know that you care about them as individuals and not just sort of a team member who is going to help you execute on your goals. But then you actually deliver on that that perception and you find ways to help them develop their career, to achieve their goals. And obviously you do it in the context of you're trying to achieve something for the company. And then you do it in a way that hopefully you provide enough guidance and direction and inspiration, but then also enough space for people to learn and you provide the feedback that enables them to learn and to be successful. So I'd say that's maybe the, the the set of guiding lights I use to to try and be helpful. And I also, yeah, try and also take feedback. So like a big thing for me, whether the company does it or not, is to collect feedback, one internalize it, and then actually show that I'm making progress on, on those things. So I probably don't always do a very good job of it, but at least I'm well-intentioned and trying to make a positive change. From a practical perspective, I, I think that feedback piece is really important because I
0: think a lot of organizations, there isn't necessarily a good culture of seeking feedback and giving feedback in a constructive way. How do you manage that process? What do you do to try and encourage that and make sure, to your point, you are internalizing it and acting upon it?
2: Yeah, so I'll talk about this role, although it's true in others as well. So I mean, like when I when I started here, many times when the leader's brought in, it's because there was something that wasn't great great before, but there were certainly some some opportunity areas. And I mean, first thing I did was I did sort of anonymous survey to everyone and just said, Hey, tell me what's working, tell me what's not working, pulled it all together. And then I summarized and actually went out to small groups within within the marketing department. I said, Here's what I'm hearing. These are the things that are going well, these are the things that are not going well. Am I capturing it correctly? Give me your feedback. And so I think even just that initial Obviously, asking the question, but the initial gesture of I really want to make sure I'm understanding it. I'm playing it back to you to show that I'm synthesizing it. wasn't just a random set of questions, and then following up after a few months and saying, you know, here are the things that we have done related to the questions that we asked and the feedback that you provided. That was all sort of with sort of sort of me, my leaders pulling together, and then in addition to the company doing a survey. What we try and do is also then ask things that we think are relevant at a more regular cadence so that we are getting that feedback and then responding to it. There was going back way, way back when I did engagement surveys, it's actually worse to ask questions and then do nothing with it than to never ask at it all. It's a really good way to, to drive down engagement when people think you, you've you given them an opportunity and you have effectively done nothing about their feedback. And so I think the asking is important, but then really demonstrating and showing that you're internalizing it is key. And then even just as sort of a, a side note, it, the way that I prefer to lead is not to just you know make an edict, but to say, hey, I have an idea. This is what I'm thinking we should do. What are people's thoughts? And then both because many times I get much better ideas than the ones that I had, but also because you want to show that you are internalizing people's feedback and sort of making your ideas better. I find that a really effective way to encourage participation and encourage people to weigh in is when you show that you're benefiting from everyone's perspective and the feedback they that- provide.
0: I was going to ask you, Brian, to that end, I mean, you mentioned there's a balance to strike between leadership and domain expertise and empowering your teams. Can you expand on that a little bit?
2: Yeah, and I probably have the benefit of a number of times I'm moving into careers that are new for me. So I have very limited domain domain expertise. I, I'd like to think probably the biggest thing that I bring to any situation is my ability to spot patterns and to ask the right questions and be able to sort of drive teams in a positive direction. You know, obviously did consulting for a while and I've now done marketing for a while. And so there's you know a lot of knowledge that I have built up. But I think even if I do know a topic really well, empowering the team is really important because at the end of the day, the most effective teams are the ones where the individuals feel they have ownership and the ability to make an impact. And you can't ever get that to be the case if you don't empower people to get it done. So like I'm, I, like I'm a think i know the answer but getting people to sort of discover the answer on their own i think is really valuable
1: brian it strikes me that particularly the cmo job right it's that has never had kind of a wider set of domain expertise that that you know you'll ping pong back and forth from you know the nuances of pr strategy in the influencer area or you know performance marketing attribution and data privacy and, you know, cr- creative testing and machine learning, right? Like, and it changes every day. Like how have you thought about kind of ongoing kind of domain knowledge, particularly as a marketer, you know, I, obviously you've been a leader in, 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 you know, for a lot of your career, but like in particularly given the range of things that change every day, even for those of us who've been in marketing for decades.
2: Yeah. It's certainly what makes it fun because you, you go from reading to reading and they're totally different topics. I mean, Practically, you need to make sure you have a good team just because it's going to be impossible to be really solid on those, the different areas. Like, I think maybe a little overdone, but when I was applying for this role and doing a lot of different sort of CMO processes, I think people said it largely comes down to three areas you're more of a demand gen CMO, you're more of a brand CMO, or you're more of a product marketing CMO. And obviously, there's a lot that sort of doesn't directly fit within those areas. And I would certainly be strongest in that sort of the demand gen side, secondary land brand, and third in product marketing. And so one, you benefit from other strong people, either they're there or you bring them in. Secondly, I think if you're less strong in an area, you owe it to yourself and to the team to try and get deeper. And so you involve yourself more of those conversations so that you can learn so that you are one, appreciating all of the really important work and expertise that your team members have, but also you need to make sure you're pulling that into your thinking more. And so I think it's a Constantly, constantly learning, being open and comfortable, being the least intelligent person in the room on a topic, and being very you know open, saying, "Hey, I, this really basic thing that you just talked about, I have no idea what you're talking about. Can you explain it to me?" And yeah, I think just being flexible, because as you said, there's so much that is changed. Like generative AI is now like the big thing that everyone's talking about, included, including. Many people who are, I think, being very loose and liberal with what they call AI and just try to detach a fancy name to something that's a bit outdated. But yeah, I think it's as you move up, you need to take on more. You need to become more comfortable trusting the people and then figuring out where you can add the most value and then diving in, diving in there.
0: And you mentioned domain expertise, but how have you bridged that gap as you've managed your careers? You've jumped from... People-orientated roles to strategic roles to then much more specialist functional roles. How have you thought about positioning yourself and being able to sell yourself, even if you don't necessarily have that domain expertise, which I think on the surface, I think myself included, you make that assumption is necessary in order to make a leap into a role.
2: Yeah. And I sort of had this conversation with a number of people who are going into their first-time CMO roles because you know, inevitably everyone is asking and saying, hey, you need to have all these things, but if it's your first time, you haven't done it. And so like the talk track that I would say is you're really leaning to what you have done and then your ability to uh, effectively surround yourself with capable, capable individuals. I think prior to that, and sort of Jackie and she was my former CMO at Tableau, like I talked to her about where I wanted to go and what I needed to do to develop capabilities. And so she actively created those opportunities for me. And then the third thing is you try and learn. So definitely brand was not my background. The Ehrenberg Bass Institute, it's a Research Institute, the University of South Australia, I think is the market leader in talking about brand. And they've written a few different books, all of which I've read. And I've tried to you know, just follow a lot of folks who talk about the space and then sort of encourage research companies I've worked with supporting those ideas that we've you know, proven out some of those theories. But so that was how I got more knowledgeable. And so I think it's a combination of looking for opportunities, trying to find expertise, talking to people who are knowledgeable. One of the great things about the Kellogg Network is we have a lot of people who are very accomplished in, in in different fields that you can talk to, and being able to pick their brain, and yeah, and then I think just the, I think the other thing to, that I always lean on is, you should market yourself, but you should never be misleading, and I think it's okay to say, hey, these are areas I've less experienced. This is why I think I can do a good job, and this is how I would overcome any challenges. But, yeah, I think figuring figuring out that right balance between highlighting and selling yourself, getting the experience to actually justify those pieces, and then being candid to say why you don't have the background, but why you think you can do it well.
1: What makes those ideas about brand the best that you've heard?
2: So I yeah, I mean, one of the things like back when I was in undergrad, I spent some time doing research related to our brain and how our brain funct- functions. And so a lot of what they have found, as well as like the Wharton Neuroscience Initiative, is that really marketing is a function of trigger- triggering and refreshing memories. So when you're in buying situations, what you want to do is understand the thoughts, feelings, emotions people have, and then attach your brand to those. And I think that very sort of quantitative research-backed approach towards how brand works and how you can take advantage of our mental structures is, I think, pretty cool. But it's also something like practical that I can figure out how to work on. So uh, yeah, I just have a number of books, articles. We're now corporate sponsors of them. That's just really useful insight that I think we could all all benefit from for work
1: can you chat through just? I'm just really curious. I love that stuff and thinking about marketing psychology is definitely like a pet pastime of mine as, as well. Talk through kind of you know one maybe less sensitive example where you put that into place.
2: Yeah, sure. So one of the so and I alluded to it a little bit. It's this idea of category association. So one of the things that they say, which is maybe controversial, it maybe challenges some of the things that that I learned in business school, but. Um, They would say that being distinctive is way more important than being differentiated. That practically people don't understand the differences between brands. That all brands are largely branded versions of their category. And so what you want to figure out is what are the associations that people have with the category. And so we practically did this at Zoom Info, I did it at Tableau in, in the past as well. And you say, you know, when you are thinking about your category or when you're in these buying situations, what are the thoughts, feelings, and emotions that come to mind? And then when you think about, you know, our brand... Uh, what are those thoughts, feelings, and emotions? When you think about competitors, what are those? And what you then do is you can actually create like a mental map of free text keywords and say, these are the things that get triggered the most. These are the different sort of keywords or keyword groups that are most related to each other so that you can say, oh, if you use something that's maybe Tableau related. If you're thinking about data, you may also be thinking about analytics and you may also be thinking about decision-making. And you want to figure out what are those clusters of words that join together the most. So that when you think about what you're known for and what you want to focus your messaging framework around, you can best tap into those integrated nodes of memories because that's essentially how our brain works is we have a bunch of individual nodes that then trigger other nodes in our brain. So yeah, I don't know if that was a good example or not, but it's filled with, I think, really like practical insights, including like if you're going to do advertising, should you use celebrities versus spokespeople versus characters? Celebrities are the worst, but everyone spends a lot of money on celebrities if they can afford it. But actually like... Sort of like why that is and sort of what gets in the way. I it to me is just like filled with tons of like, I think fascinating insights that a lot of us would as marketers would benefit from understanding that I don't think we take advantage of.
1: Love that.
0: You mentioned to come back to something you just alluded to, you talked about some of the mentorship it sounds like you had at Tableau when you were trying to figure out your career path. How important has that been for you as you've charted your career and how important is mentorship as you manage your teams and try and help them? Because I think it's something that people overlook. And how intentional have you been seeking out mentors to help you through your career?
2: Yeah, so someone fairly early in my career said, no one's going to care as much about your career as you, which is obvious on its face. But the practical like implication is you can't just wait around for someone else to give you your career and help you get sort of the, the advancement that you need. And so I certainly wouldn't say like, I've always known what I wanted. I've known the things that I've liked and sort of had some sense of like, not just what's the next job, but the job after that I want to get. And many times you don't need to take a fully linear path, but you should be thinking about what's going to help you in that sort of broader direction. But in order to think through those things, like that's where mentors are like wildly valuable because if I, you know, when I was in, you know, HR consulting, I, I, Definitely wouldn't have figured I would have landed here, but I did talk to a number of people as I was thinking about getting a PhD in industrial organizational psychology, and I ended up getting an MBA instead. And I was like, you know, let me find people that have these degrees and ask them about how they've used them and what would be valuable. And the same thing on the MBA side, or you know, if you know your you know weak in brand, who are people that are really strong that you can talk to. And I've generally found when you go to someone and say, I think you're wonderful. And super smart and capable and I would just love to be a sponge to the knowledge that's in your brain would you mind if I you know talk to you for a little bit everyone kind of likes that little pat on the back and so uh, it, it, it I, it's rare that people say "Oh I'm too busy I think if you say "Hey I'm you know looking out for you know myself and my career and whatnot you may not get the same level of receptivity but I, I think if you generally position it into a I'd love to learn from you in the pr- perspective and experience people are pretty open to it
0: that end what have you found most successful when working with mentors like that have they been typically someone you've worked under like the cmo at tableau or has it been someone outside of that network so you have some degree of
2: removal i would say I probably indexed a little bit more on what i might consider more like an informal like mentor network and that there's a number of people's brains that i try and pick rather than hey i'm always going to be talking to the same person over time Probably something I could have benefited from is doing more of that. But it's been there. Are just always lots of questions and ideas that that I'm trying to validate that I'm I know I don't know the answers to, and I think thinking of oh who would be the best collection of people to provide input has been where I've netted out. So I would say it's been like a, a three network that I've tried to think through rather than sort of a set a number of mentors. But I do think there are specific individuals such as Jackie who I mentioned who I definitely have talked to over time and picked their brain and benefited from the fact that she's known over time some of the things that I've been struggling with and trying to think through. Yeah, that makes a lot
0: of sense. And now as a leader, how considerate are you about mentoring your team or other people? Do you set time aside for that? Do you try and encourage that within your organization? What's your thought around that kind of thing?
2: So in one of the things that I think it ties into a little bit to the comments that I made, I don't find that people are be adventurous enough or willing enough to reach out and say, hey, Brian, I'd really love to you know, get your point of view on something. There, there is sort of someone who's on another team that I'm talking to now and I try and go through the organization and set up time just to do sort of random meetings with people across the organization at different levels and understand, hey, how are things going? What's working? What's not working well? How can I be helpful to them in their career? But I would say that's less structural. I, mean, I think one of the things you could highlight is, you know, should I be doing a better job saying, hey, is anyone interested in having a mentor? I'd love to do it. We don't have that program at, at Zoom Info. And so the way that I've tried to account for that is, how am I just developing relationships with people across the team and hopefully creating space so that if they have questions for me, they can reach out? But yeah, there's the, the, right now there's one person who I have a more like formal mentor relationship with because we've talked a
0: lot about some of our other guests, the difference between mentorship and coaching. To what extent do you also think about the coaching of your team and the coaching of the organization to make sure they have the skills? You talked obviously earlier on about this in terms of wanting to put the right people into the right roles. How have you
2: addressed that throughout your career and now at this point as a CMO? But actually going back there, there are actually two people that I used to work with that I still have sort of mentorship relationships with, but yeah, one, one side up. So coaching versus mentorship, I guess I think of coaching as a more like a performance management type role of you're really sitting down with people and saying, Hey, these are the things you're doing well. These are the areas for improvement. What do we need to do to unlock this for you? I mean, I certainly do that for my directs. And I think where I have hopefully more impact is at scale across the organization. So when I and a benefit of having done HR consulting a long time ago. So when I came in, I think we do a lot of things well in the performance management space, and there were also just a number of gaps. And so I set up, I think, a much more clear way of creating expectations for what I think people should be doing in the organization. And for us, a baseline for me is your performance and your behavior are equally important. I am not a fan of people who are rock stars, but are just cancers for the culture. I think that destroys team productivity. Uh, but so creating some clarity around like what that means, what are the values that I expect that people are gonna follow through with, how they're then gonna be assessed on those components, and then creating a structure in which there is regular feedback in a informal way, but certainly in a formal way. And then when we get that feedback and that 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 sort of ratings, it goes through a system where it all ladders up. And so like within marketing, we talk about everyone within the marketing department, of their performance and how they sort of how they land in our scale. And then that directly ties into sort of things like how they are compensated and sort of the opportunities that they get, whatnot. not. So I think there's a lot of like structure creation. And then I think more of the coaching that I'm practically doing is with my direct. You mentioned culture there
0: and the cancer, you know, that person is basically toxic. What do you define as a good culture? And then how do you identify those people who don't fit that? And as you say- Undermine that culture. What steps can you take as a leader when, perhaps, I guess you're on a day to day basis interacting with other senior leaders and maybe not as close to the ground as you might need to be? How have you managed that to maintain and protect the culture you want to nurture?
2: Yeah, and so I mean, like, it, for ZoomInfo it, 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 as a whole, we have values that are important to the company, and then we've added some within within marketing. And I would say, maybe it's just sort of like a broader comment. I, like, I think it is really important that people put the company and the team first that you are sort of open and honest and direct. And so you're not going sort of behind each other's backs. There's not sort of politics that are involved. And so you really are sort of a collaborative team who is trying to be successful together. You look out for each other, and then you are trying to drive sort of excellence in, in what you do. And I think there are components around that in terms of, I do think it's really important that we have sort of an inclusive environment where everyone feels comfortable sort of being who they are and bringing themselves to work. But it is that sort of tight interpersonal working relationship that allows us to be successful as a team and sort of maximize results that is what we're solving for, hopefully.
1: What's an example of a value that you've developed that's specific to the maybe the marketing team that isn't necessarily a broader adoption at the company?
2: So I think the the way that I would think about it is that there there are lots of things that are probably important at the company level that just haven't been verbalized as effectively in terms of like a sort of a value. And so one of the things that I think is really important is that we are constantly striving to bring sort of innovation. We are putting sort of the customer first, that we are inclusive, that we are data driven. And that I think one of the amazing things about ZoomInfo is we are we just move so quickly. I think a balance for that is how do you what we call like relentless prioritization. So like our practical values within marketing are customer obsession, relentless prioritization, inclusion, data driven and innovation. And and those then sort of couple with the ones that are sort of at the organizational level. So there's nothing that you need to look at the marketing ones and say like, wow, those are radical. But I think those are just sort of hammering home what I think is really important.
0: Do you think it's easier to build a culture in an environment where there is momentum and there is a delivery orientated mindset? Because I've seen in the past where that may not be the case. And there's a lot of internal struggles and inertia that actually politics becomes much more important. And who has the ear of the senior leader, it, it becomes the determinant of success, not the actual output of the team or the results, because getting to those results is actually really tough. And I'd love your perspective on that, because I think there's I think all of these things are intertwined, aren't they, in terms of coaching and making sure people are clear on their roles and how they can achieve success. And then you giving clarity around where the team is trying to get to and then actually achieving that outcome. Because I think all of those things actually strip away some of the politics when people feel they're moving towards something. And if those things don't exist, then actually that's when you see the politics come to the surface.
2: Yeah. The, yeah. The, I think the lack of clarity can make that worse. Yeah, and I think one of the things I've definitely looked out for in the companies that I've worked for is places where people are all moving in the same direction and it's as devoid of politics as, as possible. So yeah, the sort of at the macro level, just to get examples. So like like we define new possibles, we get stuff done, constantly focus on sort of being incrementally better 1% each day. Those are like company level things. We're difference makers. There is a lot of focus on we are going to try and change the world in a positive way and make sort of businesses more productive. And so it's, a, it's definitely like the fastest moving culture that I've been a part of. And I would say, sort of within that speed, Daniel, what's your question? How do you make space for trying to create a culture that sort of values the sort of the output and the success there, but also the individuals and the team members and whatnot? But it's really important. So, and that's where I've, that's where I've tried to emphasize is how do we create that space within the team so that we, recognize the relative value of the individuals we create sort of team bonding unifying activities that allow us to sort of come together more particularly because we're dispersed all over the place which makes it, it more challenging to do so yeah i would say yeah definitely not a political company but it is a place where we move fast and so like in order to focus on some of the individuals sometimes you need to have more like discrete actions so yeah create that, that that alignment that unity.
0: You mentioned actually to that end how do you assess companies to that point on being less or more political how have you made that assessment when you're evaluating opportunities like what are the yardsticks you use to determine the culture and their commitment to delivery versus the you know the more political
2: organizations and is that possible when you're outside looking in yeah it's you you can never really ask are you a political organization and expect expect a real response so i mean. Uh, obviously when you have people that work there or that you can connect to through your network that I'm just going back to the networking piece is really important. And then I think what I try to ask questions around is decision-making and sort of like, how are things decisions made? You know, where is there sort of, you know, clear sort of command and control or sort of where is it collaborative? What gets in the way? And I think many times it's more in what, how people answer the question rather than exactly what they say that you start to get some insights into a uh, to, to, to what's going on. In a, I, I don't know. I, I'm always actually kind of surprised that when you ask, I'll, I'll ask this as an interview, always like, what are your three strengths and your three areas for development? I'm amazed how many people can't answer that question. But also when I'm it, pl- potentially going to work for a company, like what are the three things you like the most? And what are the three things you like the least? No one ever seems to have like three things of a negative. And so like that last one always tends to be the most accurate because the first two are some like, you know vanilla. uh, It's tough how much we love each other, but then it becomes the third one where they're like, and we all like trying to undercut each other in meetings. You're like, oh, wow, I didn't expect you to say that. So yeah, I think it's a mix of, you know, how do you ask questions? I push on decision-making and then, yeah, just sort of the feeling you get from talking to people and also where you notice there's disconnects at different interviews. So when you ask about what different people care about, what their priorities are, are they on the same page? Do they seem like they're a team or not?
0: I think it's so important, isn't it, to listen and really pick up on some of those red flags that get revealed by asking those second order questions as you go through that process. To that end, once you've gone through that assessment and you hit the ground, now as a leader, as a CMO, but even previously as a VP and someone senior in the marketing org, what have you done to make sure that you're successful in the first 90 days to give yourself breathing space and build that credibility when you hit the ground and you first go into an organization?
2: Yeah. And I mean, particularly sort of sales and marketing leaders are two of the shortest tenured in organizations. And in in many ways, I think marketing is challenging because a lot of the things that you want to do that are going to have the biggest impact take time to sort of demonstrate. And so uh, and actually would say ZoomInfo pushed me on this more than other places because I normally think of it as like, oh, what's your 30, 60, 90 plan? Whereas uh, ZoomInfo, it was you have really 30 days to figure out what's going on and and develop a point of view around what is and isn't working and then sort of by 45 days you have to have a plan in place of like what you are going to do differently and then by really 60 days already have demonstrated some quick wins and so it's maybe a little bit more aggressive than some other places the yeah the i think is part of that figuring out like who are the key people to your success like where can you demonstrate quick wins how do you create credibility and so for you one of the things i knew coming in was you know sales and marketing generally have like tension. I've been really surprised here like how good the relationship is. But I knew that I needed like sales on my side. And so one of the first things I did was talk to the sales leader and say, like, tell me where you're having trouble, telling me where you're getting stuck. How can I leverage my relationship with leaders at other companies to potentially facilitate deals. And so that was actually a really big focus area for me of how do I pull out my Rolodex and say, how can you know, how can I help us close some deals quickly, which luckily we were able luckily we were able to do. And so that bought me a little bit of credibility there. And then with our CFO, you know, like any CFO, they're looking to be efficient. And so one of the first things I did was within my budget, where are things that are, we're not spending well. And I showed, Hey, I'm going to cut this much out and give some of it back to the business. And they're going to reinvest it. And doing that right away, I think was an area of getting credibility. So I think quickly understanding what's going on, talking to a lot of people and getting uh, the perspective, you know, above uh, in other parts of the Oregon down, demonstrating quick wins. And I think the tension is how do you do those as quickly as possible without people thinking, hey, you're coming in and you're trying to just sort of throw your weight around before you know what's going on. And I would say Zoom info is aired on the side of we want you to throw your weight around really quickly. But I'd say at other companies I've worked at, I've definitely had other people say, hey, yeah, you know, don't talk about, oh, this is the way we did it at that place and like immediately be saying, what well, we, you should do, you need to first make people really believe that you're listening internalizing appreciating the value of what's been created because there's always good reasons for things even if they don't on their face seem like smart decisions Uh, there's always been some rationale for how we've netted out so it sounds like you have full
0: support of senior leadership i'm guessing ceo at least ideally at zoom info to do what they've hired you to do How important is that from your perspective? Because I've been in organizations where you go in with a certain remit, but that hasn't unfortunately been communicated to other senior stakeholders and you find yourself doing what you've been instructed to do, but not necessarily what people have understood your role to be. How have you managed that to make sure that not only do you have the blessing of the CEO or key decision makers, but that's also understood by people you're going to be working with. Is that something you take on yourself or do you make sure that when you go in, the CEO or whoever you're working with is going to make sure that's communicated effectively.
2: Yeah, a few thoughts. So I mean, definitely like in the beginning when I said, you know, you try and pull in all that perspective and then you play it back out and you know talk to talk to with Henry, our CEO and our president of the other leaders, is getting their reaction to the things that you're thinking about. And then once you've you know gotten some of that feedback, you come out with a very clear like here are the things that we are going to be focusing on because we heard that X, Y, and Z were important. Salesforce uses this concept of a V2 MOM, vision, values, methods, obstacles, and measures that I just, since the way we were acquired, sort of took that on. I find that a very effective way of getting that alignment because you truly say, these are the things that we're going to work on. But I think beyond like the understanding of what people want and saying what you're going to work on, constantly trying to like demonstrate that you are credible. Really important, and I think people need to believe that you have domain expertise, that you're going to be reliable because you deliver, and that you're well intentioned. And so, I think making sure that you're reinforcing those things over time, and figuring out what are the fast ways that you can start to develop like credibility in those different areas is key. Because hopefully, anytime you're a new employee, people want to believe that you're competent and that they are looking out for you to be successful. But they're also wanting you to make sure they made the right decision and that you're you know you're not going to be creating problems. And so yeah, I think you need to you need to reinforce that as as much as you can. And then the I think the last thing that I would say is exactly how the, how the research went is that you know when you have really strong interpersonal relationships with someone, when you do something well, they tend to positively associate that to you, and when you don't do something well, they associate it with the environment. When you don't have those strong interpersonal relationships, it's the inverse. So something that goes well is associated to the environment or positive to you. And so making sure you really work on the personal connections is, I think, a, another really key piece to creating that credibility and landing while and driving the alignment. And I think sometimes we can underestimate the importance of that strength.
0: There's some really good advice there which I think applies generally. And I was going to ask you on the inverse of that. When you're assessing someone when you, who you've hired, whether they be junior or mid-level, what are the things you look for from them as they come in? Because I'm, you know, as a C-level person, I think that's a very different set of requirements and you have a different set of pressures, but I'm sure there's some commonalities. But what do you look for as a leader when someone has been brought into that team and as you're assessing their performance at a lower level for those people who are listening who may not necessarily be at C-level?
2: Yeah, and I mean, I think it, it sort of it, it varies as you've been at the organization longer. But I think the first thing is, you know, how are they coming in and trying to learn? So, like the way in which they are thinking about their plan to get up to speed, the way in which they're asking questions, you know, the ty- the documents they're reviewing, and the things that come out of that. So just sort of understanding one, they're sort of eagerness for the learning process and the way they start sort of synthesizing some of those learnings, I think is one of the first things that I'll look for. I think then the, sort of the piece that comes out of that, it ties into the synthesis is like, okay, where are we taking those learnings and synthesizing those into opportunities of like what's going well and what's not? And then sort of how do we translate that into plans of what we're going to do? And then how do we make progress on those with a focus on sort of near term quick wins versus sort of bigger, bigger efforts? And, in, and along those lines with folks that come into the team, I think we try and set up some guidelines to make sure that people realize that's actually what we're looking at. And so that sort of 30, 45, 60, we try and be pretty clear with everyone that those are sort of the goalposts. These are the types of things that they should be doing. And then for each role, you know, these are some of the people you should be tied to. These are some of the things you should be sort of looking at. And then trying to, you know, if it doesn't come as naturally, how do you sort of force that type of thinking at those stages to see how folks are doing. So I'd say the process is very similar regardless of the role. It's just obviously what they're going to be responsible for, what's their scope, what are the level of insights you would expect would be different.
0: It's a lot of sense. I've had an incredible diversity of experience having moved from, as you mentioned, sort of people-orientated roles, strategy consulting, obviously gone through different types of marketing roles, and now to CMO. Which of those skills do you think You've developed have been most important to get you to where you're at today. Because the reason I ask you that is for someone listening, if they want to get to the type of role you're in as a C level CMO, which of those roles you've had in the past do you think have been most valuable, or which skill sets that you developed in the past have stood you in best stead to get to where you're at today? So,
2: I you know, I'd say consulting broadly, in that the and particularly just some of the firms that I worked they were much more focused on on a a subject area, but across industries. But practically, I worked on so many different projects. But that constantly coming in, not knowing anything about the company, the industry, like what you're actually going to be consulting on, having to get up to speed very quickly, I I think it's just like an invaluable skill. And then I would say the biggest learning opportunities I had were the ones where I was thrown in and I thought, man, I'm going to fail because I have no idea what to do and what's going on and I had to figure it out, and so I think that willingness to push myself, while very uncomfortable at the time, and I'm just sort of thinking of a few examples in my head, the growth that you get through those I think is worthwhile. And so that that willingness to to push through and to quickly have to build up, and then I'd say sort of like practically where that lands now is I do feel fairly comfortable getting up to speed and like knowing the questions to ask, just because I've had to do that in different scenarios. Um, but it also means that I'm comfortable operating in environments where I, I don't have all of the details and I need to figure out how to, to poke and prod. And so sort to of do that pattern that pattern recognition. So, I, so I'd say those are sort of the collections of experiences and skills that I've shown most value. Go on,
1: Andy. Do you have any more
2: questions you want
0: to ask before we go to the next segment?
1: No, Brian, this has been great. Let's jump into our quick fire questions. So, first off, what separates a leader from a manager?
2: Uh, so I normally think of a manager as someone who is sort of has a defined set of activities and you are trying to ensure that they get done uh, within your team, whereas a leader is doing a, more of a sort of vision casting, setting the direction, maybe motivating and inspiring people to get on board, board, helping with sort of change management. And so it's much more of that future focus and either trying to push or pull people along with you.
0: What would you tell yourself from 10 years ago to avoid given what you know now?
2: I, maybe had a couple of ways of thinking about it. We talked about at the beginning, the importance of like networks. I undervalued the importance of of networks. And then when I was doing maybe like classes at Kellogg just a little over 10 years ago, I wish I had sort of pushed myself to take a sort of a more breadth in, in the classes, just to have sort of different exposure in, in, in areas where I like, I knew I was really excited about summons, so I really doubled down on them. And I probably would have benefited for being a little bit broader in the things that I tried to understand.
1: What is something you used to believe that you no longer believe?
2: So I really like the that distinctiveness versus differentiation one, I think is something that I was skeptical about it like the first time I heard it and then sort of looked at more research and I was like, oh, it makes more sense. And then now two different companies I've sort of validated internally. So that's something that I would say don't believe it's, it's changed my point of view. And then maybe another one on those same same lines also comes out of the Aaron Bass Institute. And it's relevant in the downturn. A lot of companies now are spending a ton of time on customer growth and customer retention. And what that research would show is that you should focus the majority of your time on net new customers and bringing them in because the penetration you have in the market is a much bigger predictor of your retention rates and your growth, focusing on the customer. And inclusive of, again, doing that research internally here that proves it out even showing the data that the best way to influence customer growth is by bringing in new customers and the customers that you bring in, because you can't actually change the growth rates as much as you would like to think was met by healthy skepticism. So yeah, I, I would say those are two recent things just because they're top of mind. What don't most people understand about your role? What do Most people. So I'll use it in the context of our leadership team. The marketing is always a mix of art and science because at the end of the day, you are trying to influence people. And th- there's definitely a lot of research that you can leverage and sort of perspectives you can take in. But at the end of the day, you need to try and influence people and then see what works and then learn from it. And it's not always as perfect and like math-based as, as, as I would like. And that comes from someone who's much more of like an analytics background than of sort of a pure marketing background. But I would say that's probably one of the challenges that marketers always face is how do you convince people who are more rational so to, to appreciate both the rational components of marketing and the influence components of marketing, because those are both equally important if you're going to be successful.
1: What one thing do you strongly believe that most successful people don't?
2: You're stumping me on that one. I, I keep going back to the, the things I just mentioned on the distinctiveness and differentiation one. I don't know. I, I don't know that I have a good one there. Uh, yeah, maybe the the importance of, and again, I'm just seeing it from a marketing lens. The importance of just really like hammering home messages and being like, wow, like very almost monotonously consistent in what you're putting out into market. I think one of the things that a lot of business people try to push on is like this idea of constantly coming across as new and innovative. And that's only valuable if that consistency is the innovative component. And that's what people then notice. But otherwise, you just have a lot of messages that are out there. And I think marketers in particular are too focused on getting new things out the door and constantly trying to communicate new messages but yeah outside that i'm not what is the most
0: important principle to be a
2: successful leader care i always like to work for people who i believe have my best interests at heart it makes me want to give more of myself for sort of for them for the company and now that's because i feel like yeah i have a relationship with them and they treat me like a person so I think that is a really key thing. And inevitably, we do a lot of great things and we do a lot of silly things as leaders. But if people know that it's backed up by you know good intentions and a willingness to like learn,
1: what one thing has changed your perspective on pick one your product, your industry, or your function?
2: So definitely over. So I mean, I mentioned I mean came from consulting into marketing. I when I first joined, I didn't fully appreciate in the same way I was saying about other leaders that important balance of sort of what's the like the math of the research shows relative to the very important like softer components of of marketing and how valuable those are how are you influencing and shaping people's perceptions and so that is i'd say an area that i've really learned and grown as i've gotten more into marketing and really appreciated where the value comes from
0: where have you challenged convention or what have you learned is a
2: myth So uh, yeah, I I mean, uh, this one is the one that I just spoke to a little bit, because I'm actively trying to challenge convention within our company, is this idea that the best way to grow our customers is by focusing on net new business. And that there are just, something the Eric Bass says, that uh, essentially when, and it's going to vary a little bit industry by industry, but when companies come in, they are going to grow based on a sort of a standardized distribution. Uh, And so you just need more of those companies to come in and then more of them will grow but there's a bit of a fallacy thinking, oh, we're going to get a disproportionate number of our customers who are going to be large customers. It's actually a function of the number you're bringing in, and they will sort of naturally distribute over time, particularly as you get bigger. And it, I think it's challenging for people to internalize because we like to think that we have more impact in agency. So I would say that is an area where I'm trying to challenge convention, and we'll see. we'll see how that one goes.
0: We'll come back in 12 months and see how that's
2: how that's planned
1: out. What's your favorite under-the-radar networking hack?
2: So I don't know if this counts as sort of networking or not. So inevitably, as part of my role, I need to get more sort of you know exposure to people so I can influence through thought leadership. And LinkedIn, in many ways, rewards you for trying to do this in a somewhat thoughtful way, but just trying to build your network as much as you can and sort of the speed in which you build your your network. And so depending on how much time you want to take, Actively trying to make as many connections as possible, and there's very little downside penalty outside of at some point in time you'll have too many for a week and you get blocked off to the next week. But you can always try and connect with people, and if they don't, if they don't connect, you can sort of you know un- take back your connection request. But I've actually noticed just i had mine sort of connection numbers go from like five thousand to almost nine thousand now since December when I decided to start doing this, which is pretty significant growth for a few months. And it's massively increased my ability to have reach. So that's not purely like networking. That's more of like a, how do you leverage like a social channel set to, to have reach? But that is something that I would say has been valuable as a marketer who is now trying to have more thought leadership reach with marketers and sales leaders it is a time-consuming, but beneficial way to sort of expand my, sort of my network impact.
0: Great answers there. We're going to move into the final set of questions. And so to that end, is there any content you'd like to recommend? You've named a few books that you've read, but are there any blogs, books, or podcasts that you listen to that you would like to share with our audience? That you you listen to or read on a regular basis?
2: Yeah, so the uh, I mean a bit of a random collection. So I, I mentioned the Harvard Bass Institute. They've written How Brands Grow Too and Building Distinctive Brand Assets for people that want to spend time on those. I think it, it's meant as a Sort of a web usability book, but don't make me think. I think it's just a really good way to to internalize consumer behavior. There's another book called The Leader's Brain that was written by the head of the Wharton Neuroscience Initiative that I think is just pretty fascinating in terms of how people think and how to leverage that in interactions with each other. And actually talks a lot about work versus remote versus in person work that I think is worth considering. So I think those are a few books that I've really appreciated. Yeah.
1: And you mentioned before, I think you have a unique way that you underline or take notes. Can you kind of share that with our listeners as well?
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. So I like pretty old school, but I definitely like underline all my books and I sort of dog ear them and then I type up my notes and then I create presentations of the books for my team. One, I think the whole process helps me internalize, but I I then find it a really good way to sort of disseminate through my teams. And then we'll do like a lunch and learn and we'll then have sort of a little bit of a presentation, but that is a, ch- a chance to say, okay, what did we take from this? What can we deploy within marketing? You know, did it recently with a book, Inbound Marketing from the founders of HubSpot. But yeah, I, it personally helps me a lot, but also hopefully gives a little bit more of, of reach to sort of the learnings and, and across the marketing team. Are there any tools you use on a day-to-day basis that make your life easier? increasingly trying to use chat GBT in most things to see if it can help me synthesize and do things more quickly. And we're like actively within our marketing team, we're trying to come up with ways to leverage it more. So I'd say that is something that I I do. And then it's not so much a tool, but I set up Google alerts to sort of get notified once a week on the different topics that I really care about. It's just a way to sort of surface information that it's hopefully helpful for me being a better marketer, leader, influencer, things like that.
0: Yep. Finally, is there anything you'd like to promote with the audience or if people want to get in touch with you? Do you want to share a social email or website?
2: So people are more more than welcome to reach out to me. Probably the easiest way to do that is on LinkedIn. So Brian's my first name, B-R-Y-A-N. Law is my last one. Basden is my middle name, B-A-S-D-N. So yeah, definitely reach out to me and I will do my best to respond. And then in terms of promoting, I I mean, part of the reason I joined Zoom Info was because I am so excited about sales and marketing coming together to to drive go-to-market efficiency. And I joined the company because I think Zoom Info is doing it better than anyone else. So for those that are in sales and marketing and looking to scale.
0: Perfect. Well, some amazing insights. Really appreciate you joining us, Brian. It's been a great show. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. And that's a wrap on this week's episode of Adventures in Growth. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you were able to find some inspiration for your own journey. You can subscribe to our newsletter to receive fresh weekly content that deconstructs success in tech leadership by heading over to adventuresingrowth.co. Until next time, go have an adventure.